Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is political candidate Marianne Williamson. Many of you know her from her previous uh, appearance on this podcast, but also because she is a activist, spiritual guru, and pastor, best-selling author, and I think you'll also enjoy her positions on many of the problems that are affecting society in America and her solution. Without further ado, let's welcome Marianne. Well, Marianne, it's nice to have you with me. As you know, we were just talking about this issue of cogent policies that seem logical or fiscally responsible and make sense, and why those aren't embraced by the mainstream, if you will, politicians, specifically the Democrat, uh, leading Democrats uh, or Democratic nominee or presumed nominee, and uh, perhaps the Republican Party and presumed uh, uh, Republican nominee? Well, both the Republican Party completely and the Democratic Party in part are pretty dedicated to the idea that short-term profit maximization for huge corporate entities, rather than the humanitarian values that many of us feel most strongly about, should be the governing principle of our society. Now, there are many people within the Democratic Party that disagree with that. Many of us who would like to see the Democratic Party go back to an unequivocal, unabashed support for an economics that makes the safety, health, and well-being of the American people, animals, other people in the world, and the planet itself, primary. That those things should come before short-term profits for huge corporate entities. And that's the struggle, of course, of the Democratic Party. The corporate elite establishment within the Democratic Party seems to have the power right now. And when it comes to this presidential election, they have their candidate. And they don't want to hear from anybody else. Well, I think uh, you're absolutely correct. I think uh, the challenge here is uh, how do you reduce that type of influence? I think, as you know, uh, it's many of the politicians, they're constantly in money-raising mode because their goal isn't necessarily the creation of cogent or fair policies, but to get reelected. And uh, people have thrown out this idea of having a limit on the amount of money that can be raised. And even some people have talked about actually once somebody reaches a certain level in terms of their candidacy, then the government should actually provide the resources and there should be no other outside resources. And some countries do that. What are your thoughts on that type of a policy? Well, there are quite a few ideas that try to limit the undue influence of money on our politics. But until we overturn Citizens United, it would be very difficult to get something like what you just uh, said passed. And with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, it's unreasonable to think that we're going to overturn that 
um, Supreme Court decision anytime soon. There's that. There's gerrymandering. There are other factors involved in making it very, very difficult to overturn the corporatist uh, control and over-influence. There's only one thing that can do it, Jim, and that's the American people. The American people waking up to what's happening. Now, when it comes to the Democratic Party, I think that there are many who don't realize how much the corporatist wing of the Democratic Party seeks to suppress the real progressive candidates, not just in terms of presidential races, where everybody's pretty clear what's happened to Bernie twice, and I certainly know what's happened to me, and so forth, but also even on the level of the congressional races. So the only way to uh, to rise above this right now is through awareness on the part of enough people who show up at the ballot box, and that would have to include on the primary level. If you don't show up on the primary level and just allow the Democratic candidate to be a corporatist because they were the ones who were supported with the money to even squash a progressive um, challenger on the primary level, then even when you elect Democrats, such as we have, I mean, we do, we have a Democratic president. We've had until recently a two-year stint, Democrats in the House, Democrats in the Senate. Obviously, we had the same with Barack Obama. And things just get a little bit better, maybe. And that's because the corporatists are in control of the Democratic elite, as well as the Republicans. Far, far worse than the, Dem- than the Republicans, no doubt about that. But we're moving the Overton window so far to the right, the undertow is so far to the right, that it's getting to the point where lesser of two evils, whether they're not, well, they're not as bad as the Republicans it's an unsustainable position. It's like saying the Republicans will only give you crumbs, but the Democrats will give you cookies. But you're a doctor. You can't live on cookies either, can you? No, no. And I, I think um, this points out actually the reality, which is that if you look at the platform, I think it was Eisenhower ran on, which was the Republican platform, it actually is more to the left of the present <laughs> Democratic platform, which Absolutely. is extraordinary. The Democrats today, the Democrats in power, the corporatist Democrats, are who the Republicans were when I was growing up. And you're right. Look at the tax, you know, the tax policies uh, during uh, Eisenhower. Look at the fact that he's the one who warned us about the military-industrial complex. Here he was, the supreme commander, supreme ally commander of all allied forces in World War II. And it was he who called foul on the undue influence of military contractors, defense contractors on the military budget. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, you made a comment, which I think fundamentally is truth, but how do we get the American public engaged? Certainly, I think the younger populations are cognizant of, as an example, the existential threat from climate change, and also see uh, uh, see the reality uh, of many of the issues that threaten uh, society, and they want to do something about it. Conversely, though, it seems like to me that a constituency or of people who have the ability to vote have been brainwashed, I mean, profoundly, deeply brainwashed uh, to support a candidate who, at least by every notion of morals and ethics, uh, fails. 
yet this group of people uh, stand behind this person and espouse policies that frankly often are racist and um, uh, are against themselves or their own best interests. How do you deal with, and uh, perhaps it is frankly brainwashing, how do you deal with this to have people understand uh, the threats that are uh, being propagated against them by the party in which they're part of? I don't think the problem is with the American people. I think the problem is getting to the American people, and I say that to you as a candidate. I, I think the American people are basically decent people. We're no better, we're no worse than people anywhere else. And if you look at issue after issue, Jim, the majority of people, both on the left and the right, support many of most of the policies, actually, that you and I would support. A lot of times people will say, I support that policy, but I don't, they don't support it if they hear it's part of the Democratic Party. So a lot of people have a problem with the Democratic Party, but they don't have a problem with the policies that the Democratic Party is standing for. And that's for a whole variety of reasons. Now, what I see as a candidate is when you are, as a Democrat, trying to run on things that you think are, are the most popular views, because remember, poll after poll showed that Bernie Sanders was the one who would beat Donald Trump in 2016. Poll after poll showed that. But the Democratic elite, it wasn't about, it, the question wasn't who will beat Trump. It was about we've chosen Hillary. And what's happening now, it's like watching a car crash in slow motion. They're repeating 2016 all over again. We're not supposed to have a serious conversation about whose agenda would actually be the strongest to oppose Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. No. So people like Bobby Kennedy and myself are saying, let us have a debate. Let people hear what Donald Trump, uh, what um, Joe Biden has to say. Let them hear what Kennedy has to say. Let them hear what I have to say. And then the Democratic voters should make a decision. Who do you think and what issues do you think would be the best opposition to the Republicans, which would give people an opportunity to do exactly what you said. Realize that maybe this would be good for me. But instead, the DNC, the Democratic elite, is trying to suppress any candidacies that are not their chosen and anointed one. That's, you know, that's, that's the real problem we have here. The, the way to save your democracy is to use your democracy. A party that purports to be the champion of democracy should not be so wary of it in our own house. Well, I think uh, that's uh, not only the Democratic Party, but uh, the Republican Party as well. Uh, well, I, think the, I, think, I don't know. It's very strange, isn't it? The Republicans have the elitist policies, but in a weird way, a strange way of more egalitarian relationship to its own constituency. The Democrats have the more egalitarian policies, but a weird, more elitist, paternalistic uh, relationship to its own 
uh, to its own electorate. And also you see something among Democrats you don't see among Republicans. Among Democrats, there is this bizarre codependency with the DNC that you don't see among the Republicans. And that's what people like myself are facing right now. Oh, we have to go with Biden. Why do we have to go with Biden? There should be a primary. Oh, the DNC says. Who is the DNC? This is not 100 years ago when a bunch of men are supposed to sit around a table smoking cigar deciding who the... um, who the nominee should be. And I think the point goes back to your original question. How do you convince the people? I don't think the problem would be that hard to convince the people. But, and and by the way, in 2016, there were two candidates who were saying to people, your, your rage is legitimate. The system is rigged against you. Bernie was saying it and Trump was saying it. And Hillary was saying, let's continue with the success of the last eight years. People are thinking, what success? What success? And I think they're feeling that way now. If Biden goes out there with this message that the economy is basically doing well, that's great for 20% of Americans for whom it's doing well. But that 20% are living on an island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. So I think if you actually said that to people and said, we are going to make the fundamental economic U-turn and pattern disruption that will change your circumstances, I believe that that would be be DeSantis, and I think it would be Trump. Uh, Just to reflect on a comment you had said earlier, I think that, uh, I think you're absolutely correct in the uh, fact of the reality that most people are in the middle. Now, they may be a little right of the middle or to a little left, but I think the vast majority of Americans uh, actually are sensible people and um, understand the important aspects of many of the policies uh, that you've been espousing. The challenge, I think, is you have a very loud extreme on either end of this that is in some ways disruptive and in other ways um, are the ones being listened to and are driving a lot of the policies. Uh, You also commented, which I thought was interesting, how um, both Biden and Trump said the system is against you. Well, they're both absolutely correct. Biden didn't, Trump and Bernie, not Biden. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Bernie. uh, uh, Well, Biden may have said that, but uh, I don't know. But you're right. Uh, I meant Bernie. I, I meant Bernie and Trump. They're absolutely correct. The question, though, is, what are the um, ways in which you utilize that information and how is it used to manipulate, uh, to sit there and say, yes, the system is against you, I'm going to fix it. And then all you do is create self-serving policies for the corporate elite versus uh, saying the system is against you, here's why, and here's what we need to do. And I think one of the reasons that Bernie, uh, and I think you yourself, uh, have been absolutely consistent over and over, spanning decades, as to what needs to be done to improve the lot of the majority of American people. And I think uh, that's very important. That is why Bernie uh, would have won uh, against Trump. And uh, uh, and as you point out, I think the Democratic Party had pre-chosen their candidate And on some level, they're just as bad as Republicans in terms of the issue of manipulation by corporate interests. 
Well, there is a way to turn this country around. And you turn this country around, you actually turn the ship around, you have an economic U-turn by establishing some of the policies that are themselves considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. Universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, free child care, paid family leave, uh, guaranteed sick pay, a guaranteed living wage. Uh, what I propose is an economic bill of rights along the line of what uh, Franklin Roosevelt said he wanted when he called them the four freedoms. He said there's the freedom of religion, the freedom of protest, but there's the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. And that was the difference, of course, between Bernie and Trump. They both said the system is rigged against you, but Bernie meant it and was going to change some things. And that's what I would do if I were president. I would not, you know, Biden did not say the system is rigged against you. He just said, be very, very afraid there's a neo-fascist on the other side. There was a neo-fascist on the other side and two neo-fascists that we know of will be running again. One totally scares me. I tell you, DeSantis actually scares me for my country more than Trump does in a bizarre way. But, but if all that that Biden is offering is more service to the corporate elite, but just more alleviation of stress so that you find you find it easier to survive the injustice of a system controlled by the corporate elite. That's not enough. It's not enough to beat the Republicans in 2024. And even more importantly, it's not enough to repair the country. And that's why I am proposing an actual fundamental uh, pattern disruption. Um, Franklin Roosevelt said, that we would not have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises. So as a doctor, for instance, the way I look at it, you being the doctor, of course, not me, um, I see neo-fascism as the disease. It's attacking democracy, but neoliberalism and corporatism have been eroding it from the inside. So neo-fascism is the disease and neoliberalism has weakened our immune system. It's weakened people, and weakened people become a petri dish out of which all manner of societal and personal dysfunction arises. So we have to we have we have to see the struggle on both sides. As long as the Democrats in 2024 or in any other race are going to continue to only offer neoliberal solutions to the challenges in front of us, I'm not afraid of the votes that the Republicans will gain. I'm afraid of all the people who will stay home, particularly young people who, for whom the fact that Biden has approved the Willow Project, the fact that Biden has given more um, oil drilling permits even than Trump did, the fact that he's um, permitting the exportation of liquefied natural gas, the young people are just like, uh-uh. You, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. And that's what could beat us in 2024. Yeah, well, I, again, I, I'm not what, sure what the solution is uh, to energize that group of people who demand change. It is interesting to me that whenever you talk, offer it to, go ahead, offer it to them. Say we're going to have an emergency level just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. Say you're going to cut the defense budget. Say you're going to take on the price gouging by 
by defense contractors. Say you're going to take on the corporatocracy of insurance companies, pharma, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical companies, big oil, big chemical, big food, um, uh, big ag, gun manufacturers, and defense contractors. Say it. Say you're going to take them on. Say that that corporate tyranny needs to stop now, and you are going to do everything you can using the bully pulpit, using executive orders to move us in the direction of Medicare for all and all of the other policies that I prescribe. Young people hear it. The American people hear it. The problem is that the DNC and the mainstream media makes it very, very hard for a candidate saying these things to be heard. We're blackballed from a lot of mainstream media platforms and, um, getting our voice out there is harder and we're not receiving all those multi multi-million dollar uh, corporate donations. Uh, so uh, all of that being said then, uh, and if you look at your polling, I, I don't know if it's in the single digits still, but uh, uh, how do you overcome that then in the face of this tide uh, of uh, corporate self-interest, which has had so much influence on both the Democratic and Republican parties? Well, I have been up to 11%, but even when I've been down to, I think, 8 at one point. So I've been at 8, at 9, at 10, and at 11. That's still higher than Bernie uh, was in 2008 at this point. I mean, 2016 at this point. And it's higher than uh, Barack Obama was in 2008. And you simply talk to people. There are other ways to talk to people besides, you know, a CNN town hall, such as I'm doing with you right now. I don't think, you know, it's interesting because my experience so far is it's not so much being heard. It's that the system has trained people to limit their political imagination. So people will say ridiculous things like, well, I don't want to vote for a spoiler. Intelligent people say this what are you talking about? It's a primary. Or I really agree with her, but she can't win. What are you talking about? It's a primary. Vote for who you actually want. So when you say, how do you, being heard and breaking through are two different things. Um, and the system, you know, there's this, oh, you just have to vote for Biden. You have to vote for Biden because the fascists are at the door. For me, I'm running because the fascists are at the door. I reject the notion that, that Biden is a strong candidate for 24. 2024 will be a different, a very different election than 2020. And I don't think he's the best that we can offer. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with you. I mean, I think perhaps at his prime, and uh, he may have been uh, a different candidate, uh, but certainly uh, I don't think today. And it's an interesting challenge, right? Because we have a weak candidate. Uh, and then the question is, who actually ends up being the Republican candidate? Uh, it is unclear to me, I mean, what the consequences will be if and when Trump is indicted. Uh, and also uh, what I find, again, extraordinary <laughs> with the fact that Trump has even survived this far with all the baggage he carries. You know, you look at him compared to Obama, who had zero scandal while he was in office. And every day it's as if there is a new scandal involving Trump. But, you know, you mentioned how you're more fearful of DeSantis. And to be frank with you, I think it's because on the one hand, you have a person who has no uh, self-regulation and is uh, fundamentally very immature and frankly not particularly intelligent. And you have uh, uh, really a candidate 
who is quite intelligent. Obviously, you know, DeSantis, I think he went to Harvard and he has uh, wonderful credentials on an academic level. But he, to me, uh, is using everything he can to manipulate the system uh, for a fascist agenda. And uh, it's it's very uh, uh, concerning, uh, that particular situation. It is very concerning because DeSantis is very overt about his fascist leanings. I don't know if he doesn't know that those are fascist leanings or what. Um, telling people what books they can read, telling librarians what books they can put on the shelves, telling classes what courses they can teach, telling women what they can do with their bodies, um, telling transgender people, talking to people who uh, want to have an undocumented worker in their home or in their car. You could be uh, seen as a, as a felon. Uh, he even said the other day, that with his election to the presidency, the left would be destroyed. Now, in a democracy, you say, my political opponents will be defeated. Not my political opponents will be destroyed. That's fascism. But once again, the bigger problem, I still think what Roosevelt said is true. The bigger problem is not fascism. The bigger problem is that we are vulnerable to fascism and we should never have gotten this close to the danger zone. We are so vulnerable to fascism because for the last 50 years, there's been such a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% that it has left the vast majority of people living on almost a survival level on some level. And in the midst of all this economic despair, you know, we should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk. Desperate people become a petri dish out of which all manner of, uh, of, of toxicity, including vulnerability to genuine, you know, ideological capture by seriously psychotic forces is almost inevitable. Anyone with even a modicum of historical knowledge understands. It is unsustainable. You know, I always say, if, you, if you're not going to read history, just read Yertle the Turtle. You can't have this level of income inequality. And it's not just wealth inequality. It's wealth creation inequality. You've got so many people living with, you know, and CNBC said the other day, 70% of Americans say that they live with basically chronic economic anxiety. And then we act like we don't know where this mental health crisis comes from. So we have to quickly and immediately and vigorously begin to enable people those factors of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whether it has to do with healthcare, whether it has to do with access to education, wealth creation, unionization, allow people to thrive. Jim, in the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home if they wanted to, and could afford to send their kids to college. That was a thriving middle class. And when there was a thriving middle class, we weren't dealing with these kinds of threats to democracy. Well, I think uh, uh, that's true. I, uh, what happens, of course, if you take away uh, everything somebody has and you create this chronic economic anxiety, uh, unfortunately, you're right. I mean, people are susceptible 
uh, to fear narratives. And then uh, they turn to someone who has this populist uh, uh, narrative that says they're going to save them. And it's really terrifying, I think. And this is, whether it was Hitler or anyone else, there are techniques that are standard. Blame the Mexicans, blame the uh, the immigrants, blame the Jews, blame the gay Mine. people, blame the black people. And this is all a cover rather than, hello, blame us, the people who are controlling all the wealth, controlling all the power, controlling all the capital, controlling all the things that we know. But I do think that on the left as well, and also on the right, there is a, an awakening going on today more and more people, you know, don't look up. They're starting to look up and realizing the corporate tyranny that's in our midst. That's what's really happening. You don't have you you, you don't not have universal health care because of black people, Jews, or immigrants. You don't have universal health care because of insurance companies. You're rationing your insulin, and and one in four Americans living on uh, with medical debt, eighteen million Americans because uh, unable to fulfill their prescriptions, not because of the blacks or the Jews, the immigrants or the gay people, but because of the pharmaceutical companies. I think slowly but surely people are beginning to realize that maybe um, the wool has been pulled over their eyes and they're ready to actually look at what's really oppressing them. That's certainly my hope, and that's certainly my message. Well, and, you know, I appreciate that. I, I think it's sort of fascinating. If you talk about healthcare as an example, uh, people have said, well, that takes away uh, the physician's ability to make decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Yet you see private equity into the business of uh, uh, offering healthcare or controlling groups of people like ER physicians or pathologists or radiologists. And every time they get involved, the cost goes massively up because they become actually quite efficient at manipulating the billing system and essentially enslaving physicians. Uh, but whatever domain it is, uh, as you well know, the corporate class or the corporate elite uh, understand these things much better than the average American. And, uh, and they're the ones who control the strings. I, I think you and I have talked about this before. We look at Davos, which is this gathering of the corporate elite, and um, they're never going to implement policies that uh, will take away their privilege, period. It is not going to happen. And as I think I've told you this quote before, and I'm going to, it's not uh, the exact quote, I'm sure, but basically Tolstoy, who said, there is a man on your back choking you. He's acknowledging he's on your back choking you, but never does he offer to get off your back and stop choking you. And I think that's very much uh, the way it is. The privileged, whenever their privilege is questioned, will give you the narrative that they're being oppressed. And it's like, as you pointed out, which I think is absolutely on spot, over the last 40 or 50 years, the middle class and the poor have been decimated by all of their hard work, the production that they have created uh, through their efforts and having it stolen away by corporate interests, shareholders, uh, which has a profound negative effect. I mean, as you know, if you look at, as an example, why do we have a minimum wage in America? We should have a living wage. If the wage that was uh, present at in the 70s 
was the same accounting floor inflation, it would be $22 to $24 an hour. That would be the minimum wage. And it would bring back what you were just saying about the ability of the middle class to have a life, not uh, be constantly in fear. I think you also know, I think the average American has less than $400 of discretionary income in case some emergency occurs. How is this even possible? Uh, And it's because uh, we have been fed a narrative, which isn't true. What I think is fascinating, just to make one more comment, is prior to uh, the pandemic, corporate interests would say, we can't possibly afford to pay over minimum wage. It'll destroy our business. Now, with the epidemic, where people say, I'm not going to work at that, it's not worth it, or uh, I'm not going to take that uh, job because you're unfair, suddenly corporate interests can find a way to pay $18, $20 an hour and imagine the world doesn't end. It's like the smoking ban that was instituted, right? Every company said, uh, the restaurant industry as an example, we're going to destroy our profits. Nobody's going to come to the restaurant. You can't do that. And the fact of the matter is it was done. And uh, without a whimper uh, from the rest of the world, it became policy now all over the world pretty much. And uh, all of these entities have survived just fine. And I believe that uh, giving a wage of 20 or 22 or $24 an hour, nothing will happen. What will happen, uh, except for the fact that what will happen is you will have happier employers, you will alleviate the economic stress of our survival, and actually uh, change the face of America back to uh, this, and I won't say idyllic, but this situation where people could thrive, live, care for their families, and not be constantly in fear of their lives being destroyed, either by a medical emergency or some other event that occurs in their lives. Well, you'd also have more people who could afford to go out to dinner at that restaurant. That's why the restaurant <laughs> yes. would be able to afford to do better. In my Economic Bill of Rights, which people can find on my website at marianne2024.com, one of the 10 pillars is a guaranteed living wage. Um in, even if you lift it to 15, you were talking about lifting a real living wage in most American cities now would be 22 to 25. Even when people talk about lifting the minimum wage to 15, there are cities, major cities in the United States, where even if you're getting $15 an hour, you wouldn't be able to find a place to live. A third of America's workforce li- uh, works for less than $15 an hour and cannot find a place to live. You were talking about private equity before and their role, their, their malevolent role really, in, in healthcare, same with housing. This is where the big crisis is now. They've turned housing into a commodity. When you have an unfettered capitalism, hyper-capitalism, crony capitalism, it's like a heat-seeking missile and its tentacles go everywhere. And there is no place where it feels more heat than where there's human despair, people desperate for a place to live, people desperate for an education. Then it squeezes people more and more. And until we are willing, and I think the American people are willing, but the the systems which chop wood and carry water for that corporate elite doesn't want to let candidates even in there who will say to the American people, I have an idea. Let's push back the corporate elite. Let's do in the second Gilded Age the same thing we did in the first Gilded Age. The first Gilded Age, they elected Franklin Roosevelt four times. He passed the New Deal, deal all of which was a repudiation of the robber barons and the Gilded 
Gilded Age. Now, in the second Gilded Age, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party, the elite treat people like myself, like we're trying to hijack the Democratic Party. They hijack the Democratic Party. They're the DuPonts and the Morgans and the Whitney's. We're Eleanor and Franklin. Eleanor and Franklin wouldn't even be allowed into the Democratic Party today. Because he said about the economic royalists who did not want him, who vehemently opposed him, who called him a socialist, and his response was not, well, we can reach across the aisle and make a deal. His response was, I welcome their hatred. And that's what we need in a president today. Someone who sees that for what it is, says, I like some of you guys personally, but when it comes to what you're doing to this country, you're going to have to go through me. You're not going to be able to continue this systemic economic tyranny and injustice, which is holding so many people back. That's the kind of president we need now. No, I totally agree with you. I think you're absolutely correct. These, uh, whether it be the Democratic Republican Party, they have sold their soul to corporate interests. And I think somebody has to have the courage not do a poll uh, to sit there and say, enough is enough. This will not be tolerated. <clears throat> this is a I lie. I <laughs> yeah. know who that was. <laughs> I know who it is, too. Uh, but that's what we need. We have to have somebody who has the courage to stand up. But, of course, we need to have uh, a absolute um, energizing and an absolute mobilization of the American people so that you – uh, cannot be ignored, uh, or other candidates who espouse policies, although I don't think there are any other than you, uh, solutions to solve the problems that are affecting America. Uh, I think that we need this. It is what is going to save America. And uh, while obviously I know you uh, personally on some level, uh, these things seem so obvious if you think about them. Uh, and it's fascinating to me how when you espouse uh, simply kindness and compassion to everyone, uh, it's called socialism. Uh, when you care about everyone, when you want everyone to thrive, this is not unfair to anyone. This is the absolute level of fairness that will make people's lives feel uh, purposeful, that will make them feel they're contributing, that will decrease this uh, fear that people have about their own survival and also for the survival of their children. I mean, these are imperatives that have to happen. America has a mission statement. It's called the Declaration of Independence. And when we allow the Declaration to be our North Star, we do fine. When we deviate from that, we falter. And the humanitarian, really spiritual values that are at the core of the De Declaration of Independence are exactly what you just said. The governments are instituted to secure the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is exactly what you just described. That everyone, that all men are created equal, and that everyone should have the right to those things, whatever constitutes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are the things you and I have been talking about tonight. The right to get an education, the right to be able to live somewhere, the right to have a living wage, 
the right, the, the right to health care. These are the things which today constitute the basis of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's government's job to do those things. And that's why recognizing this is traditionally American. These are radically American ideas. Now, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, 41 out of the 56 of them were slave owners. So from the very beginning, we've been both and. From the very beginning, it's baked into this to the cake, this bipolar nature of American consciousness. Then on one hand, we are, based on the most enlightened principles that have ever formed the foundational core of a nation, and we have been imbued with forces, usually for their own economic or, or sometimes ideological purposes, had no intention of seeing those ideals manifest and would even go to violent lengths to make sure they weren't. I think knowing history is so helpful because you begin to see, and of course you write about Eastern religion, you know, in the East they talk about time is just a circle. We're just, this is just a reiteration of what was at the beginning. Every generation lives this out. So we're going through today the original, the original fracture. Those who believe in radical equality, all men created equal, doesn't matter if you're transgender, doesn't matter if you're black, doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're gay, doesn't matter if you're straight, no matter if you're uh, rich, poor, this religion, that religion, no religion. It's a radical idea, and it is as much up for us. We are a challenge as much today whether or not to, to decide whether or not we really mean that as in any other generation. And challenge to take that next part about the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Somebody who is rationing their insulin Somebody is putting up a GoFundMe page for a life-saving operation, Jim. Where's their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? When meanwhile, you can take, you have an $88 billion medical debt in this country, and if you put together the profits of the top five pharmaceutical companies one year, last year alone, $80 billion. No, it's appalling. Uh, uh, and it's not only the pharmaceutical industry, as you know. I mean, here, as an example in regard to the pandemic, the government funded a lot of these uh, entities that created vaccines and asked for nothing in return. What sort of insanity is that? Uh, or the fact that for some reason, the largest user of pharmaceuticals in the country cannot negotiate prices. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. Uh, and now the Democrats brag, we got them. They got them. Ten years from now, uh, some of the prices <laughs> will go down and the pharmaceutical companies will decide which ones. Actually, there was an act in 1980, the Birch Buy and Dole Act, which gives the, com uh, the government marching rights, which means that if a, a pharmaceutical drug is developed with even $1 of taxpayer money, which basically means all of them, that the government does have the right. Of to course. decrease the price, but they don't use it because they're afraid of the pharmaceutical companies. And that's why you need somebody in there who's not part of that system. No, I, I listen. Manipulate or navigate that system who just doesn't care, just wants to go in there once and just say, lay it down, use a few uh, executive orders, do what you can, uh, use the bully pulpit, lay it down, tell people what's going on, use the power. You can't overreach it, don't abuse the power, but use the power of the presidency to the extent you can, and then get out of there and just let them try to take away from people what you gave them during that four no. years because people won't stand it. Exactly. I, I, I think you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, once you give people that and they have a clear understanding of, frankly, what the Constitution guaranteed them, 
then they absolutely would not work against their uh, best interests. Uh, one of the other things uh, I just wanted to mention, uh, which you've said and I agree with, is you know you have uh, as an example the Republican Party saying the problem with the government, it's not run like a business. The government was never meant to run like a business. The government is meant to ensure the rights of every American. And when you start looking at a, through the lens of business, it becomes, how do we maximize profit and give the least amount to uh, others? And uh, that's part of the problem. We need to turn America, and I know that Bush talked about his compassionate conservatism, which I believe ultimately was a lie. Uh, We need to give people compassionate government that looks at everyone as a human being, everyone of value. You know, people sit there and say, well, look at the prison system. You know, there are all these criminals. Frankly, the prison is not filled with criminals. The prisons are filled with people who have not been given love or opportunity or caring. And we perpetuate that by not having any type of a rehabilitation for these individuals. So on essentially every level of society in America is being attacked by false narratives that wish to uh, enslave people and not allow them to have their efforts uh, translate into uh, human thriving. The vast majority of violent criminals in America's prison system today have in their files listed multiple adverse childhood experiences. Uh, absolutely. You when know, I was uh, in college, there were 300,000 people in the U.S. prison system. Now they're over 2.3 million. And who's the criminal here? Partly, the criminal is a system which uses the prison. It's kind of like the old allopathic medical model. You don't proactively create health. You just try to eradicate or uh, mitigate the symptoms. And that's how we use prisons. That's how we use war. That's how we use police. Just slap down the problem rather than recognize it is a cry of despair coming up from the heart of things. Well, and that's the problem is when you've had decades of unfairness, and where parents can't take care of their children and uh, they don't have any economic opportunity, again, it gets back to what we talked about. Uh, they uh, uh, participate in behaviors that ultimately are going to cost them and in a very unfair way because, of course, as you know, the majority of prisoners are made up of minorities or the poor. And uh, again, it's horrible. You know, I've spoken a lot at prisons. And frankly, uh, these people just need somebody to care, like we all do. Yeah, and um, the criminal is the state in many, many cases. Well, you know, I was speaking, I was at an event, and I was speaking to the CEO of a private prison. And and he said to me, I'm glad they did not uh, uh, abolish the, uh, uh, what is it, the triple uh, felony thing? Three, uh, three, three, three strikes. strikes. Yeah, he says, because if they, if they, or, and I'm glad they haven't legalized drugs because that's going to ruin my business. Now, what kind of a human being would make a statement like that? Uh, and it's shocking, frankly. Uh, and, go ahead. The problem is not only in my mind that he made that statement, but that he felt permitted to make that statement. That goes back to the 80s. Greed is good. Ivan Bosky, remember? 
Yes. That's what trickle-down economics has given you. This idea that we're supposed to think it's okay to increase profit at the expense of people's lives, at the expense of the planet, at the expense of the worker, at the expense of children, at the expense of animals. And this is where we are today. And we've had 50 years of that, and it is destroying us. And now the same system, which has been governed by people who are bought and sold by men like that, would now argue that the only people who could possibly lead us out of this ditch that it's driven us into are those people who have been part of the car that drove us into the ditch. The status quo will not disrupt itself. The status quo enables that man. I think it's so interesting that you of all people heard someone say that. I hope you expressed your disgust in such a light way. It's just outrageous, isn't it? Like no, it, it, it's sociopathic. That is why I often talk about how that that entire economic paradigm is sociopathic. There is no conscience there. There is no ethical. You know, even uh, Adam Smith, <coughs> the main articulator of free market capitalism, said it cannot exist outside an ethical context. Adam Smith would be horrified by that man. Well, no, I, I totally agree with you. The other interesting thing is you said that person had no shame, right? It was okay. But we've created – Yeah, we've created a, 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 a group of people who have no shame in being racist. We've mm-hmm. uh, created a group of people who, frankly, many of them – as an example, you talk about critical race theory. They immediately say how horrible it is, yet you query them on what it is. They have no and clue. Yeah, and it, it, it's fascinating. Or uh, they buy into a narrative that the the uh, minority or the immigrant or the gay is the cause of all of their problems when they have actually no direct knowledge of any of this. This is what is being told to them and uh, sold to them. So I think uh, what you're describing as radicalism, I think, is frankly uh, what a normal human being <laughs> should think of. This and is a radical. That's really, that's the radicalism of the American experiment. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the principles of ethics, humanitarian values, compassion, and love aligned with public policy. Most Americans would agree that those values, those characterological aspects of self should dominate our personal lives. But people have been trained to think, oh, but that doesn't apply to our collective behavior. And that's where the gap is. Our public policy should display love, forgiveness, compassion. And those are the humanitarian values of the of the Declaration of Independence. You know, I don't find, once again, once people have an opportunity to hear this, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And you begin to understand why the system works so hard at making sure they don't hear it. No, I think that's right. And, and in some ways, I think this is analogous to what uh, would happen in communist countries or fascist countries where you limit the ability to spread the message That's and right. you keep the, polis, uh, the the populace ignorant so that they have no ability to understand alternatives or see things that actually would be best for them other than the narrative of the populist or the fascist. And I think we're in some ways we're seeing this in a classic uh, fashion in how the media is manipulated and how our candidates uh, manipulate people. And as you mentioned, if you look at the Nazi playbook or any fascist playbook, what is happening now is exactly that. Absolutely. On that wonderful note, 
Uh, we have an alternative here, and uh, yes. I think there are millions of people who actually agree with us, Jim. No, and I think more of us have to get out and uh, uh, spread the message. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm honored to talk to you. And, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, some sort of stupid blanket endorsement uh, based on something where I've been paid or I'm somehow benefiting. This is fundamentally an expression of uh, our common humanity, which should be the focus of how we live our lives. Everybody should re be recognized. And, you know, this ridiculous thing about it's your business how people uh, live their lives if they're not harming anybody. Uh, and love is love. You know, whether you're gay, you're trans, uh, whether you're a particular race or culture, religion, we need to embrace everyone and accept the other as us. Well, that once again, that's all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. It was radical in 1776, and it's still radical today. And as much as at any time in our history, we're challenged whether or not we really mean that, whether we're really going to stand on that. And I think people are awakening to this is this is um, if if we give up on the the philosophical pillar of of America of the idea of a free society, then God help our grandchildren. Well, I'm still optimistic, and uh, uh, and uh, some people may call it blind optimism. There's actually an interesting term called dispositional optimism. <laughs> Faith is not blind. Faith is visionary. Yes. And I uh, think optimism taken to its to its full expression is faith. Faith, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That love does have the final say in history. It's our job, however, to bend that arc, right? And once again, it's not blind, it's visionary. If you can we can look through history and see the ultimate evil never ultimately prevailed. Uh, in every instance, and I, I do not think it will prevail in this instance. I think it just takes the willingness of people to stand up and say, enough is enough. I uh, will not allow you to pass, you know? Yeah, not on uh, my watch. Exactly. So. That's how I feel about running. I feel like, you know, I can't control whether enough people enough people will support me, but I can control whether or not people will have the option of someone who is stating as clearly as you and I have stated here tonight the real challenges that we think confront us and the need for the economic, social, and political U-turn that will enable us to begin a season of repair. Indeed. As long as I'm running, people have that option. Whether or not they take it is up to them. But as long well, as I'm running, uh, uh, let us hope that that is the case. And I think all we can do is do the best we can. As you well know, uh, life is not perfect and uh, we are not perfect. But if we strive to be the best people we can be, uh, then it is there for us. So, I think there's a perfection in that. And when you look at the history of the United States – imperfect people ended slavery, 
imperfect people passed the 19th Amendment and gave women suffrage, imperfect people established labor unions, imperfect people uh, desegregated the American South. And that's pretty freaking perfect that they did those things. And maybe that's what it takes. It takes imperfect people doing the best they can under the circumstances. Exactly. Well, thank you, Marianne, uh, for a uh, wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. And I appreciate uh, the policies that you're espousing because uh, fundamentally uh, they represent the best of our humanity. So, Thank you, Jim. Thank, thank you so much. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>